All right, I remember this thing with, when the Pokemon came out. Do you remember the Pokemon guys? Everybody's sitting there walking around with their cell phone, looking down. And then all of a sudden we started ha having instances where people fell off a cliff or fell down a hill. Right. So, again, when you're when you're looking down, who's looking around for you? Right. At least get someone to be next to you and be like, hey, hold on a minute before you fall down the ledge. Thank God I was there and I wasn't looking at my phone. All right. So when you when you start feeling like you're doing that. I think that there might be something going on. All right. So this is a counselor. And what we want to do is we want to talk about this with you guys. Um, and your parents, they're just frustrated with you. They're upset with you, right? Because you're not paying attention. Um, you're always on your phone. How many times have you heard someone say, you're always on your phone, right? Addiction. Oh, you're always drinking. You're always partying, right? People start telling you're always drunk, right? So addiction, when someone starts telling that you're always on something, all right, that's something to start thinking about, right? All right, and welcome back to The Counselor, and I am your host, Sheldon Stovall. So glad to see that you guys are starting to send some comments through. Uh, we started a new thing called Ask the Counselor, uh, in which people can now send an email. Um, they can also call into the show, and you can talk to the counselor. So if you are interested in having a conversation with me, um, if it's about the subject matter that day, um, we can put you on the calendar if there's something open. Uh, but more importantly, we want to hear from you, so make sure you look at the bottom of the screen. And give me a call. Uh, you can call our number, which is listed below. You can email me at promo at thecounselor.live, or you can slide up in my DMs. Okay, so uh, a couple things. Uh, thanks so much for subscribing. I mean, I didn't realize that this would grow so big in just one month. This is going to mark one month uh, that the counselor has been um, public and it's been a great response. So I appreciate you guys and hopefully you're getting more comfortable with me as I'm getting more comfortable with you and we can kind of make this a good experience because I'm going to be here for a while. All right. So today we're going to be talking about surprising facts about addiction. Um, some things are very surprising because a lot of people don't realize this, but substance abuse has been around for a very long time. And it's generational. It's going from generation to generation to generation. And for some reason, um, we don't have enough information on it because if we did, uh, we would do less using and less putting our money in places where it's not benefiting us. We're going to talk about that in a minute because we're going to talk about some money, some numbers. You're going to think about some numbers. How, how big is the substance abuse industry. All right. So let's start with the first surprising fact for today. Alcohol is the most abused substance. Okay. So the staggering fact about addiction is not really that alcohol is the most abused substance. Um, it's also legal, right? So that alone gives it a greater reach for people to use. So basically you just need to be 21 um, you have to be able to learn how to read or know how to read so you can read some of the labels because uh, you just, you know, if you walk in a liquor store, there's so many labels. I mean, you can just, you know, you can't just pick a brown bottle or a white bottle and call it a day. You kind of kind of figure got to kind of figure out what you're drinking. Right. 
So, uh, yes, it's absolutely legal, right? It's been legal for a while um, in this country. At one point in time, it was not legal. And, you know, alcohol prohibition, that time period, and there were reasons why. Um, So today, um, alcohol is the most used substance because you can walk into a liquor store and get it. And I just want to read some uh, interesting facts uh, that I found uh, by the, the Nova, it's called the Nova Report. Over half of all American families can trace some history of alcohol use. Okay, over half. While, while this sets the scene, generally, how about outright alcohol abuse? So we can think back to grandparents, maybe even great-grandparents, when, you know, grandpa had a little bit too much to drink and, you know, things would be a little different in the house. Or if we have a parent or parents that abuse alcohol or overdrink, um, there's also issues with that. So I got a couple quiz questions I want to ask you guys, and if you can guess the answer, let me know. And I often do this in my groups, and I'm sure some people that probably are seeing this will definitely know the answer. How much alcohol does it take for you to be drunk? So that's going to be a good quiz question. If you know the answer, I want you to comment below this video uh, when it comes out. But how much alcohol do you think it takes to for an individual to get drunk? All right, so we're going to leave that for you guys. All right, so as we can see, because alcohol is uh, able to be purchased, right, then you can actually go in and just have to be at the legal limit. So how is it that these kids are getting it? How is it that uh, some of these young kids under 21 are still drinking, drinking and driving, underage drinking, getting arrested? How are they getting it if it is a legal require? It's a requirement that they show their ID and that they must be 21 in this country. So I want you parents to think about that. I've heard many kids mention when we do talk about this in groups uh, that they went right to their parents' liquor cabinet. So parents, if you have a liquor cabinet inside your house, all right, and it's not locked, or if everyone knows where the key is, um, maybe you need to rethink that because a lot of a lot of people and a lot of young people we have talked to and I have talked to and counseled in many sessions. You know, I start asking them, so how are you getting the alcohol? Oh, it's, I just go to my parents' cabinet. They don't even pay attention. They don't even know what's, when it's missing. So, parents, I want you guys to think about that. All right? So, it starts early. Alcohol dependency starts early. And, yes, it is a physical addiction. Anyone who is addicted to alcohol, okay, anyone who's addicted to alcohol, all right, you are at risk of becoming addicted to alcohol. It is after a while a physical condition. All right. <clears throat> All right. So addiction is 70% uh, addictions 740 billion bill. Right? So addiction tobacco, all right, um is also addictive as we all know. Um, and it leads the pack to some distance ex- ex- exacting a cost of $168 billion in terms of health care alone each year. Overall costs rated to a cool about $300 billion. So there are issues when someone becomes addicted to uh, illicit substance. You start having health issues. So when you're having health 
issues, what comes next with that? You have to go get taken care of. You have to be treated. Whatever's going on in your life at the time, um, the alcohol is only going to increase that health-wise and make it worse. So some people end up, you know, their kidneys start weakening, their liver um, begins to start getting built up, breakdown. Um, there's a lot of physical issues that happened as a result of al- overconsumption of alcohol. And this happens over time. So now what's happening? You're in the doctors all the time because your liver is starting to become damaged. Um, you know, however, so many issues, diabetes, if you're, if you have, diabetes and you're drinking alcohol, you are worsening your condition. All right. So addiction does cause more an increase in medical and healthcare care costs. All right. Addiction can alter your brain structure. So as well, I'm going to read this so you can read this as well as the obvious financial cost of addiction, to the cost of anyone addicted to a substance can be more dangerous still systematically abuse abusing any substance can cause the way your brain is structured why is this well addictive substances are so hard to put down because using them gives your brain a shot of dopamine and we talked about that a little bit last time it's a a chemical messenger and neurotransmitter that can affect mood right we talked about that a little bit the front portion of your brain houses the reward center, and this area is electrically stimulated by dopamine. So as we talked about it before, and we're actually going to look at a video that I often show my lot of, a lot of my group sessions. Um, it's a YouTube tech talk, and it, he, there's a gentleman that does kind of break down how, um, whether it's heroin or any type of opiate, um, any kind of uh, alcohol, like your dopamine levels in your brain increase, right? Um, so it's almost like you're adding, you know, some dopamine and we call it whatever drug you are, but that's what's happening is you're raising the levels of dopamine per nanogram. And so then after that, that, that's part of your brain that feels pleasure, your reward system. So when that pleasure is being felt, your brain records it. It says, ooh, a new feeling, right? So, oh, I want that again. And so then, boom, you're going to look for that pleasure again, right? And then your brain is going to start continuously looking for that same pleasure, right? Because you don't wake up with that pleasure, right? Natural dopamine happens, as we talked about, if someone is having sex and you feel some type of pleasure, yes, your dopamine your levels have increased. You know, I think about 50 um, nanograms uh, per decimeter, so... Yes, it does increase the pressure. But then I guess when you add an illicit substance like heroin, I think it goes up to like 110. And uh, alcohol, I think it brings you up to like 111. You know, the dopamine levels go up. And I think crystal meth, as we mentioned last time, it brings you all the way up to 1,000. All right? So it's very dangerous to be playing with the dopamine because then all those levels that go up, what happens when something goes up? It has to come down. So it's, it's, you have to be mindful of what you're putting in your body and what are you causing your body to adjust to, all right? Um, so it can start altering your brain, subject, your brain structure. Um, so I don't want to get into that too much, but these are just some of, the, some of the interesting facts you need to think about. Multiple genes play a part in addiction. 
So if you started doing any reading about your addiction, you probably uh, encountered the concept of an addictive gene. And that's been an argument so much, you know, is there an actual addictive gene um, that people are inherit? And when that addictive gene is activated, uh, that's when the brain finds some type of satisfaction. It, it, it feels something that it hasn't felt or, or needed to feel or just wasn't activated yet. So example, uh, opiates. Okay, so anyone who has an addictive gene and it happens to be anything related to opiates, you take that first uh, opiate pill, that's going to be like some euphoria that you've never experienced before. So it's going to be a feeling that you get and that, and it activates in that addictive gene and that, that once that addictive gene is activated in your brain, now that your brain knows what to look for when it wants pleasure. All right. Um, so just, we just want to, I'm just touching on some of these. I don't want to get too far into them. All right. Co-occurring, co-occurring disorders, addiction and mental illness. Co-occurring disorders involve more than one health condition, which what that means. Uh, generally mental health disorders simultaneously. So the most common entrance of this is substance abuse in tandem with any of the following anxiety. And we talked about this in the beginning. We were talking about uh, substance use. People self-medicate or go get drugs or alcohol. Anything that you see on this back wall behind me is what would be considered an illicit substance. So if someone is dealing with untreated anxiety, meaning you feel anxious a lot, your body has this, this overwhelming feeling that you can't, you don't realize why it's feeling like that. That could be your anxiety, or some people call it butterflies in your stomach, or some people, you know, just look up some of the symptoms, uh, physical symptoms of anxiety. So when that starts happening, all right, when that's being untreated, what do you, most people take medications, right? So if you have high anxiety, you know, your psychiatrist would probably suggest that you take some type of um uh, anxiety medication to help you deal with your anxiety, right? Um, to regulate it. Um, so if you're not listening to your psychiatrist, if you don't believe in taking medicine, the anxiety, that doesn't mean anxiety isn't going to go away, right? Uh, even if some Christians, you know, you want to pray it away. Okay, that's great. You can use your faith and however to handle whatever situations, but that anxiety if not treated, you're going to begin to self-medicate, okay? And self-medication for anxiety are as follows. Alcohol, all right? Opiates, heroin, fentanyl, anything that's going to calm your mood down, right? Some kind of, not, not a, a stimulant, something that's going to uh, relax you, right? So that's why people turn to street drugs, we call them, because um, you're dealing with untreated um mental illness or mental health, mental illness. All right. OCD. That's a big one. PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress. A lot of people always mention, I got PTSD for this, PTSD for that. PTSD is very serious. And it's a part of your, it's part, your brain remembers a particular part of a trauma 
that um, you can't really let go yet. Um, and it's not if it's not treated, right, it's going to cause, well, every time it comes up, you're going to want to try to get rid of that memory. You're going to try to get rid of that feeling. And how do you do that? Right? Have a little bit of drink. That'll make you feel better, right? Um, let me just take this pill with the number 20 on it. Maybe that might help. Oh, actually, let me just uh, break it down first. Put it in a line and sniff it up my nose, right? That's what people, that's their, their plan to deal with whatever trauma or past trauma that they don't want to deal with, right? You want those feelings to go away. And one thing we all know about drugs, right, and alcohol, it's not a permanent fix. After you run out of money, after you run out of alcohol, when you're on your last drop and the liquor stores are all open and you took your last sip um, from the last bottle, nip bottle that's at the end of the bed that you forgot about, when that's all gone, guess what? These problems are still there. And so what we want to do is we want to, as counselors, as people that work with helping people, we want you guys to start identifying why is it that you're turning to self-medication and why does it have to be such a dangerous choice? And again, when you're 14, 15 and 16 and 17 and you're going through your life, life growing lessons and it becomes tumultuous, right, for you. All right. So turning to drugs could be an option, but it doesn't need to be the option. And one thing I want you guys to start learning, and I'm talking to the 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds and 19 year olds, because that's who my audience is right now. When you guys, I want you guys to start learning a few things. You're going to have to learn to cope in life sometime. It may not be a quick fix all the time. So sometimes you might need to learn to cope. Okay. And coping is the best way to deal with life when you cope. All right. So um, remember, we're just learning here today. And again, if some of you find yourself when we're talking about these subjects that it's kind of hitting home, I want you to pick up the phone and I want you to call uh, the counselor network. We are available. We have trained professionals that we can uh, send you over to right away. We can connect you live. Um, we can get the, the professionals on the phone with you. Um, so there are people to help you. And this show is here to kind of encourage you guys to kind of step out, get out of your shell and start talking because many of you are dying. And I'm going to keep saying this as long as I'm talking about substance abuse, many of you are dying by the day. And, you know, again, when I worked in detox, you know, we would see certain couples come in, you know, the 18, 19 are coming in, getting themselves better. And then all of a sudden we wouldn't see these couples anymore. And so as counselors, we're thinking, oh, they must have done better. And then some of the patients say, no, that's not what happened to them. They're dead. What do you mean they're dead? They just left here a week ago. Detox I'm talking about. Yeah, because guess what happens when you go detox your body? When you detox your body from whatever alcohol or drug you're on, what happens is your tolerance levels for that drug, and we talked about that the other day, tolerance, meaning your body can start you taking more and more. The more of the substance you take in, the more your body wants to handle. And so your tolerance level becomes higher. But when you go to detox, 
right, and you get clean, your tolerance levels go all the way down to zero. And so when you want to stick that whole amount into the needle again that you was doing before you got to DTEX, that got you there from your overdose, right? When you want to stick that whole thing in you, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to go out immediately. You're going to go back into an overdose, and you might have a lesser chance this time of waking up. All right, so I want you guys to start thinking about it. Even alcoholics, same thing. You cannot drink 17 bottles, 17 nips or a sleeve, they call it, right? You can't drink all, how many, 12? There's 12 in a sleeve. You can't drink 12, okay? Go to detox, so you're shaking like this when you walk in the door, right? And then when you walk out, go right to the liquor store and drink another 12. What's going to happen to you? All right, your tolerance level is lower now, so you have to start thinking about what the consequences are for your actions. And again, I want to say that there is a cure of addiction in my series is coming out very soon. Um, and we're going to be talking about pre-ordering copies, but there is a cure for this addiction. First of all, you need to go back to the origin. When did you start drinking? When did you start using opiates? When did you start smoking crack? When did you start using all these illicit substances? And most of you say the same thing I started using when I was 15 or 16. And so what I'm saying to you is for you to make a decision at 15 that now you're 39 still dealing with, there's something wrong with that. And that has to do with mental illness. All right. So it's important that you adults now start thinking about that. And the issues with your mental illness. All right. Another thing, depression. Huge, huge. A lot of people, there are so many people depressed. And just think of after this horrific pandemic episode of the coronavirus, one and two and three hit America and the world more than two years ago, almost now. Many people have lost relatives, family members. You lost children, right? You lost coworkers and loved ones. So depression is something that you guys are going to start dealing with as well. And if you're not dealing with it or never dealt with it, you're going to need professional help. All right. So that's why I want to say if some of these things we're talking about are hitting you or hitting home, give us a call. Call the number below. Um, you will reach, you may not reach me right away. You might talk to someone in staff. Um, you can send me, email me, um, or you can text me on my DMs on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. There's a way to reach the counselor in every social network and aspect. And if this is just a start, you just reach your hand out and extend, we're going to extend our hand back to you and help you out as well. All right. So please give us a chance. Uh, to help you and help or maybe someone around you. All right, number six. These are surprising facts that we're talking about now. Americans consume 80% of all prescription pills globally. I'm not going to touch that. I lived in L.A. and Hollywood for a long time, 
And I've never seen so many people with so many bottles of pills in their purses. I mean, in their car glove compartment. I mean, I'm like, what do you need a pill for? Like, how many pills can go in your your body at one time? So, yes, I agree with that. Many Americans assume a lot of pills. I mean, these are, and as we have learned, right, as we have learned with this entire opioid epidemic that's still lingering, right, some of these prescription drugs that were supposed to come from our doctors, people made a lot of money from that. So we're going to talk about that at one point, too, of this whole origin of this opiate epidemic, because it's been going on for quite a while, and it's not talked about like it should be. It should be talked about it a lot more because people are still getting their hands on these pills, and they're still dying, and they're overdosing. So there's something that's, that's being looked over still to this day, and I guarantee it has to do with money. All right. Prescription drugs have a higher fertility rate than illegal drugs. So I'm going to read this. Continuing the prescription drug path, it might surprise you to know that legal pills kill more people than illegal drugs. Cocaine, heroin, and crystal meth overdoses tend to grab those headlines. But over the decade to 2010, 48,000 American women died from opiate overdoses um and this is this uh, article is a little bit dated because that number has uh, quadrupled all right people were using these opiates opiate drugs at, at one point but again they're physically they become physically addictive and everybody's body is different so what affects you right away may not affect someone else or what affects you quicker may not affect someone as quickly Right. So you need to think about that when you're taking or listen to your friends about what's available versus what's not available. If somebody can pop an 80, congratulations. When I say an 80, I mean, that's the uh, opiate. So if someone can pop an 80, right, that's 80 milligrams of opiate substance. If someone can put that in their mouth and swallow it, more power to them. That is dangerous. Um, as I don't know what, for someone to just put an 80 milligram of, of, of fentanyl or or uh, oxycotton, I think it is oxycodone, into their body. It's very dangerous. Your body has to break that down. Okay, it's going to go through a liver, and that's a lot to process. And I see some of these rap videos and some of these kids, oh, I'm popping 80s and all these other things they're saying. And I get that you're making money and becoming relevant, but people are actually taking that seriously. It's unfortunate for me. I, you know, I got into rap a little bit later and a little bit, I mean, like, like maybe last week or a month ago. Um, and I started listening more because I'm trying to figure out what the message is. Cause there is a message coming out in these, from these rappers. They're, they're communicating with us, but we need to understand what's being said um, and I often say that, like I said, we do a lot of music therapy and we read songs, um, especially in addiction treatment that talk about how people overcame. So sometimes the cure for addiction can be in music as well. Right. Just learning and listening. Um, so I said that to say that a lot of times people think it's cool to do drugs. It's not cool to do drugs or to drink, especially when you're a minor 
meaning you're under the age. There's a reason why there's a, an age limit. All right. All right. So we're going to finish these uh, surprising facts. I got two more. Most addicts work for a living. That is true. And a lot of people start out. Okay. Um, with the regular typical, you know, after work, they'll go out to the, with their friends for happy hour at five o'clock and have a drink. Okay. And pretty soon that becomes what you do to relax yourself is have a drink or do whatever drug you of your choice, right? That becomes your relaxation scale. That becomes part of your normal. And so after a while, like I said, this develops in people at different stages, after a while, one drink, you won't feel anything anymore. And so now when you typically just order one glass of wine, now you're ordering two glass of wines at dinner. All right. And then again, how much does it take for a person to be drunk? How much alcohol does it take for someone to get drunk? I want you guys to put that answer because I have the answer, but I want to hear what you guys have to have to say. How much alcohol does it take for someone to get drunk? You'll be surprised. All right. So most addicts work for a living, right? So let's talk about that. Think about the stereotype of an addict, okay? A homeless, unemployed bum, right? Crack addicts creating mayhem on the trails um, for their next rock. Meth hags clustered around a park bench and smokers spending all day in a weed cloud having opted out of society, right? So it's very lonely when you're an addict. And usually if someone spends most of their day looking for drugs, then they're obviously not working, right? Which means they can't afford it, so they have to come up with ways to get it, uh, which leads to crime, and we'll talk about that at some point. These all make for a far better news stories than a gamefully employed man being heading off to work in the morning, even though he's struggling under the pressing weight of drug addiction. So according to SAMHSA, three quarters of all people with a drinking or drug problem are employed. Of course. I mean, that's, that's how these things are sustaining because most people that, that can't afford a drug problem are usually someone who's homeless, right? Who can't afford drugs that are out there holding signs or, you know, asking people for change or, you know, asking family. You know, you run out of family when you're an addict, right? So it's important that we understand addiction respects no boundaries and happens regardless of background or income level. So are you telling me that rich and wealthy people can be addicts too? Yes. Yes. Quite a few of them. You know, they have, again, I lived in California for a long time. They have some of the most exclusive uh, rehab centers that you would ever even, you couldn't even imagine who's there because you have to pay $100,000 a month just to attend. And even when you do get there, um, nine times out of 10, you're not going to see anybody. All right. So it's important that you pay attention to what's going on, uh, in regards to, uh, pulling yourself together. This can happen at any level. And lastly, heroin was once perfectly legal. So while rightly vilified today, heroin was once 
not only legal, but marked as non-addictive. So that was part of medicine. Um, back in the 1800s, it was part of medicine. All right. So I want you guys, um, if anything, any of the subject matter has, um, you know, moved you in any way, um, if you feel or you know someone that may be needing some help, I want you to pick up the phone, give us a call. Um, you can email us. You can uh, call the number below or you can slide up in my DM.